0: Solomon week five as we study the Bible's guide to a better marriage. How many of you guys enjoy in the study through Song of Solomon? You enjoying it? You're getting better, not bitter, amen? You're getting a little help and healing. You're not hurting one each other. Here's my prayer, is that we go from struggle to snuggle. That's what me and Ashley have been praying for. I'll come home, baby. I say, hey, we had fun at church. We're gonna go from struggle to snuggle. More snuggle, less struggle. That's my prayer, because no matter who you are, everybody wants their marriage to get better. Whether you're dating, engaged, single, if you're married, or if it's complicated, no matter who you are, everybody wants their marriage to get better. Nobody gets married and says, I hope that I am going to be unhappily forever after. No, everybody wants the happy forever after. Everybody wants their marriage to get better. And so, by God's grace, I want to help your marriage get better as well. So, if you're in person, welcome. If you're on, Online, go ahead, do me a favor, click the share button, because I believe that this message today will help a lot of people's marriage to get better, because guess what we're talking about today? We're talking about fighting. That's what we're talking about. We're going to talk about how to fight right, and the big idea today is that better marriages are a result of better fights, that's right, better marriages are a result of better fights. And we all know somebody who needs to learn how to fight right. So go ahead, nut, hit him on the shoulder, because you know you brought him to church with you. You need to learn how to fight right. The truth is, there's a lot of different places that we could go when it comes to getting marriage advice. You could turn on the TV during daytime, and you could watch Dr. Phil, or maybe you could watch Oprah and you could get some advice. You can get some good advice and you could also get some bad advice. When it comes to marriage you can get good advice or bad advice, you can read books, you could read blogs, you could get good advice or bad advice. You could go ask your friends and they could give you some good advice, but some of y'all's friends they be giving you some bad advice. You need to get better friends and you can get better advice. You can get some good advice, you, can get some, you could watch The Bachelor and you could get some good advice on what not to do because that's some bad advice. When it comes to dating or marriage, we could all get some good advice, we could get some bad advice, but the truth is, is we need more than advice when it comes to having a better marriage. We need good news, because it's only good news that changes our hearts, changes our minds, and changes our lives. And so how many of you could go for some good news when it comes to your marriage? Okay, well then you need to open up your Bible and go to the good book, because that's where we find the good news. And that brings us to Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse two, because Song of Solomon is the Bible's guide to a better marriage. And today we're gonna learn how to get into a better fight. Some of you grew up in home where all your family did was fight and argue and debate and raise their voice and escalate. And because of that, there's a lot of trepidation and fear and insecurity and anxiety when it comes to fighting. And so you don't fight. You don't argue. You bottle it up. You keep it in. And it doesn't get better. Instead, it gets bitter. But I want to submit to you this, that better marriages are a result of better fights, the more you fight right, the better your marriage to be. Now, the other side is actually true too, that bad fights lead to bitter marriages, but good fights lead to better marriages. In fact, researchers also agree with this. There's three stages to any marriage relationship. The first stage is the honeymoon. That's what we saw last week in Song of Solomon, and we saw everything on the honeymoon night, amen? We saw it all, that's the honeymoon. Now, that word honeymoon literally means the sweet month because that's about as long as it lasts, one month. See, when you first get married, you think they're so amazing, they can't do anything wrong. And then you move in with them and you realize, they can't do anything right it's not so amazing see in the honeymoon period you think everything's perfect And then in the disillusionment period, you realize very quickly, they ain't perfect. Ladies, how many realized very quickly, he ain't perfect. Amen? All the ladies said, amen. Men? Don't answer that question. Don't answer it. That's a trick. That's a trick, Pastor. I know. Because last week, you said that my wife is my definition of perfection. I've been given that line all week long, and it's been working. You ain't getting me to go back on that. No, she's perfect. But it's a disillusionment period. And a lot of couples, they get stuck in this period Disillusionment. This is why there's bitterness and arguing. This is why there's unresolved conflict in the marriage. This is why many relationships are struggling because they haven't learned how to have a good fight. See, conflict is the price you pay for greater intimacy. The more you fight, right the healthier your relationship's gonna be because a bad fight leads to a bitter marriage, but if you learn to fight right, a good fight could actually lead to a better marriage because the third stage in marriage is what is known as commitment. And the only way you can enter into the commitment period is if you learn how to handle conflict. And so that's what we're gonna do today. In fact, Song of Solomon follows this same guideline. And I just love this. Song of Solomon was written 3,000 years ago. Three thousand years ago, and now relational experts and sociologists are just now discovering the eternal truths of the Bible. And so, if you're here today and you're thinking, Pastor Byron, this whole Song of Solomon series is outdated and archaic, and nobody does their life that way, I would submit to you that if you just give it another three thousand years, eventually society and science will also catch up with the Bible too. Maybe the Bible is the right way, and maybe our way is the wrong way, and maybe that's why so many relationships are struggling today. We need to do it the Bible's way. So here's the Bible. guide to a better marriage. And Song of Solomon, 80% of it is really good. 20% of Song of Solomon is them fighting. Doesn't that sound like your marriage? 20% of your marriage is you fighting? Okay, that's the way that it is in the Bible because the Bible is the most honest book that has ever been written. See, 80% is really good. Last week we saw the honeymoon and it was really good. And then next week we're going to begin the commitment period. And it's gonna be really good. There's a line in the commitment period where she says that love is as strong as death and jealousy as demanding of the grave. How many of you hear that and you're like, now that's called commitments? amen? See, there was the honeymoon stage and then there's the commitment stage, but here we find ourselves two chapters, 20% of the book, and it's actually them fighting. The Bible understands that we're going to have conflict in our relationships, and so we need to know how to deal and what to do with conflict when it comes up. And so here's my big idea. Bad fights lead to bitter marriages, but good fights lead to better marriages. And so today we're going to see, if you have your Bible, how to fight right. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, starting in verse 2. The sermon title is called An Army with Banners, See, the army, that's the fight, that's the war, that's the conflict, the banners. Well, that's grace, that's hope, that's love, that's mercy, and that's forgiveness. That's the way that we want to fight to forgive. The army is the fight. The banners is the forgiveness. So we're going to see the army of banners today. She says, I slept. But my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open up to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew. My locks are dripping with the drops of night. It's the middle of the night. It's early in the morning. And she's asleep, but she ain't really asleep. She's awake. She is restless. Her heart was awake. There's something wrong. What's wrong? Solomon didn't come home last night. Uh Uh-oh. He's in trouble. So she's asleep, but she ain't asleep. She's waiting. That's what she's doing. Her heart is restless. She's waiting. She is upset. She is mad because she had to watch This Is Us all by herself. (laughs) She's upset. She cooked dinner, and it's cold. It's already leftovers by now. He didn't come home, and he didn't call, and he didn't text, and he did not. He had the audacity to not let me know he did not come home last night. I mean, Solomon, he's the king, though. He's the king, right? I mean, he's, things come up when you're the king, right? I mean, he's got responsibilities. He's got some things that he's got to work on. He's got people that depend on him. He's the king. He can't just be stopping whatever he's doing and texting him. Hey, babe, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit late. I love you. He can't do that. He's the king, of course, right? No, he couldn't do that. So there, there, there's, a, there's a fight. And then Song of Solomon, it tells us this. He comes home. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. What is he doing? He is laying it on thick. That's what he's doing. See, for Solomon, he don't know what season he's in, though. He still thinks he's in the honeymoon season. He's about to figure out real fast, honeymoon's over. He's in the disillusionment period in his marriage right now because he comes home. What is he wanting in the middle of the night? What does that sound like, my love, my dove, my perfect one? Let's just recap Song of Solomon so far. Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two, the first words in Song of Solomon. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Mm, This is Bible kissing. That ain't French kissing, that is Bible kissing, right? The French, they stole it. Just like French fries and French toast, they stole kissing, that comes from the Bible. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Next she says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. Those are ancient aphrodisiacs. Okay, what she's saying is get the chocolate and the Red Bull, because we going at it tonight. (laughs) She also says, put your left hand under my head. Put your right hand to embrace me. This is make out position. Shoot, baby, shoot. That's where they're at. This is Song of Solomon. And then last week, what we saw is this. Your two breasts. I love that the Bible mentions there was two of them. (laughs) It would be weird if it said, Only one of them, no, two breasts are like two fawns, the twins of gazelle that graze among the lilies. What he's saying is, I am on a nature walk and I'm looking for some baby deer. And then last week she said this, I'm gonna read it with a straight face and I'll let you figure it out. She says this, she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest of fruits. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) All scripture is God breathed and profitable. Okay. They have a really good relationship, right? But the honeymoon is over. He comes home, open up to me, my love, my dove. I'm ready for some baby deer. (laughs) And here's what she says. I have taken off my garment. How can I put it back on again? I have bathed my feet. How can I soil them again? That's Hebrew for I got a headache. Not tonight. (laughs) She's saying hunting season is closed. No baby deer for you. (laughs) And they get into a fight. Now, I know this has probably never happened in your house before where there's a fight over this. But I'll tell you, this happens in the Ellis house quite often. You would not believe how many times this happens. See, like Solomon, I have a very demanding and very busy job too. And I come home and I'm tired. And I only want one thing when I come home, sleep. But Ashley, on the other hand, oh no, no, because you know how women are, right? You know how women are. I mean, Ashley's like, my love, my dove, my perfect one. I'm like, can I just cuddle tonight? i mean, like, I am a human being. I have a soul. I am more than just a body. Could you please? But, you know, we don't have two kids because I'm good looking. That's what I'm saying, right? Okay. And she, Ashley's not here. She's watching online. I love you. Did I embarrass you? Are we going to get in a fight when I get home? We're going to get in a fight. We're going to get in a fight. That's for sure. That's for sure. But what I've discovered is this. When it comes to fighting, there's a lot of different reasons why people fight. Some people say they fight because of money. Maybe they fight because of kids or in-laws or sex or whatever it is. But really, underneath the surface, there's a big reason of why we fight. And I think it's what we see here in Song of Solomon, unmet expectations, See, she has expectations on Solomon. She expects Solomon's going to come home on time. She expects Solomon is going to make her the center of the universe. She expects Solomon that he's going to make her the priority and press pause on everything else. She has expectations. Where's Solomon at? What's Solomon doing? Right, he's probably with the daughters of Jerusalem right now. Who's he hanging out with? Who's he with? Why didn't he text me? Why didn't he call me? What's Solomon doing? She has an expectation of Solomon that he did not meet up or live to that expectation. But Solomon has expectations too. Solomon expects it's the honeymoon. He doesn't realize it's disillusionment. He thinks he's going to come home and he's going to... Just keep on going right where he was going, but no, 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 no. He has unmet expectations as well. And when you have unmet expectations in a relationship, unmet expectations lead to frustration, which leads to the fight. See, we all have unmet expectations in relationships. Maybe when you got married, you thought that he was going to be Mr. Fix-It. And then you realized he can't even fix a bowl of cereal. (laughs) There's an unmet expectation. Maybe when you got married, you thought that it was going to be victorious secrets, but instead you got sweatpants and moo You're like, oh, it's an unmet expectation. Maybe when you got married, you thought that he was gonna pay all the bills and he was gonna work a budget, and then you realize he has to take off his shoes just to count to 10. There's an unmet expectation that you had. Maybe you thought there was gonna be Bible studies in the morning, instead he takes the boat out and goes fishing. There's an unmet expectation, and unmet expectations lead to frustrations, which leads to the fight. But I'll tell you this, a lot of the fights that we go through could easily be avoided or mitigated if we would learn to do one thing, if we would learn to communicate better. That's it. If Solomon would have just said, hey, babe, working late, love ya, sinned, probably wouldn't have had a problem if he would have just learned how to communicate better. See, a lot of the problems we have is because we don't communicate very well. And here's the important thing you need to know, that your expectations and your frustrations, communication is the distance between the two of them. See, a lot of times, the reason why your frustrations are so high is because your communication is so low. The reason why your expectations are here and your frustrations are here is because there's a big gap between your communication, your expectations. If you would learn to communicate your expectations, you will lower your frustrations in the relationship. This is why it's so important for you to make time to sit down, have honest conversations with your spouse because the gap between expectation and frustration really is communication. When I'm doing premarital or post-marital counseling with a lot of people, there's a lot of unmet expectations that they've been bottling up and they've been storing and they have not been telling their spouse. And so everything that spouse does is just increasingly more frustrating to them because they're not communicating the things that are going on inside of them. The gap between the two is, communication. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home today after you put the kids to bed or maybe over lunch, wherever you're at, I want you to ask your spouse. And if you're dating, I want you to ask your dating partner this question. What unmet expectations am I not living up to you? Have the conversation. What are you expecting out of me that I am not living up to you? Have the conversation. And I can guarantee you this. If you have that conversation... The rest of this sermon is going to be really important for you to pay attention to because you will get in a fight. (laughs) You will get in a fight. So what I want to do now is I want to use Song of Solomon as a case study, as an example, as a Bible's guide to a better fight. And I'm going to give you five ways, according to Song of Solomon, for you to have a better fight because good fights lead to better marriages. And better marriages are a result of better fights. And so we're going to learn from Solomon and his wife how to have a good fight. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is the first thing that we see. The first way that you can have a better fight is to respond instead of react. I want you to respond instead of react. What did they do? They reacted. A lot of times our fights get worse because we react out of our frustration rather than responding out of love. And so when it comes to getting a fight, we want to respond with love, not react out of anger or frustration. We want to respond rather than react. Here's what we see. I arose. So he's knocking on the door. He gives up, he leaves. Eventually she's like, all right, I guess I'll let him in the house. (laughs) She says, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolts. I opened to my beloved. My beloved had turned and he's gone. Where is he at, where did he go? Probably went to go sleep on the couch. Ladies, you need to understand that when it comes to conflict with your husband, you are at a significant advantage, okay? Because your husband knows this, that for him, if he wins the fight, he loses the fight and he still sleeps on the couch. If he loses the fight, he loses the fights, and he still sleeps on the couch. For the women, you are in a significant advantage when it comes to fighting, and so we need to learn how to respond rather than to react. We need to learn how to fight right. So here is what it goes on: My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. The watchmen they found me, they beat me. They went about the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. Those watchmen on the walls. In verse seven, it talks about the watchmen on the walls. You read that and you are like, did she just get like abused? Is there some like CSI thing going on here? Do we need to get law and order involved? Is that not right? No, actually, no matter what was 3,000 years ago or today, it's not good to beat up the queen. So that's actually not what's happening. What's happening instead is this, as she's going and she's looking for Solomon, she's realizing with every person she asks, with every turn of the corner that she had done wrong by him she's beginning to feel remorse. She's beginning to feel regret. She realizes that she has made a mistake and she has sinned against her husband. And as she goes about, she's realizing more and more and her heart is broken. Her soul is bruised. And it says that they have taken away her veil. Their relationship is in very, very big trouble because of the watchmen on the walls. Now, There is a researcher out of the University of Washington. His name is John Gottman. He's the lead researcher off the Gottman Institute, and he spent 30 years studying marriages. And after these 30 years of studying marriages, he can predict divorce with a 95% success rate. He can 95% of the time predict divorce in a relationship based upon what he calls the four horsemen of divorce. Now, we call him the, the watchmen on the walls, but he calls them the four horsemen on divorce. And he'll say that in 95% of the marriages, there's these four problems. And there's a lot of reasons people get divorced, but these four things are in every marriage. And within a 95% success rate, he can predict them. And here's what they are. It's criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Alright, right, so first is criticism. These are you statements. You always, you never, you can't do anything right. I can't believe I'm stuck with a person like you. You are just like your mama. You are dumb, you are ignorant, you are a failure. That is criticism. These are you statements. This is when you begin to criticize the person rather than have a conversation about the problem. It's no longer about their behavior. It's now it's about their character and it's become criticism. That's the first watchman. That's the first horseman. The second one is what he calls contempt. This is criticism with body language. This is when the hand goes on the hip. This is when the the, the head starts bobbing and weaving on the neck. This is when the eyes roll in the back of the head. This is when the feet start stomping and the doors start slamming. That's called contempt. You disgust me. I can't talk with you. I can't look at you. I can't stand to be around you. Is everything okay? Yes, everything is fine, right? That is contempt. The next one is defensiveness. This is when blame shifting enters in. I didn't say that. You're crazy. I didn't stop overreacting, Okay, you're making this way too big of a deal. It's not that big of a problem, right? I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but just so you know, if you add a but to the end of an apology, it is no longer an apology. That is called defensiveness and blame shifting. And it is a watchman or it is a, a horseman. And the last one is this, stonewalling, AKA the silent treatments. This is when you just give up, you give in, you don't talk to them anymore. You're not fighting because you're not talking that you just roll over. You give them the silent treatment. You give them the cold shoulder. The, the pillow next to you is cold because well you don't let them in the bed just like Solomon's wife. Lock them out of the door. Say, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to have this conversation. I give up. I give in. It's over. And then pretty soon, when you build the walls between the two of you, you allow the horseman or the watchmen to come in and beat you, to bruise you, and to take away your veil, and it'll bring devastation within your relationship. Now think about it. Marriage is the only relationship where we can treat people like this and think it's going to make it better. Have you ever noticed that? Marriage is the only relationship where we come to this conclusion that if I hurt them, they'll love me more. And that's what happens when we react instead of respond. What we do is we hurt the people that we love the most. So often what we're doing is we're hurting the people that we actually love the most. And the closer you are to somebody, the easier it is for you to hurt them. Have you noticed this? Like criticism just doesn't work. I mean, how many of you at work, right? How many of you when your boss is just laying into you and just like, I can't believe you, you messed up again, I'm going to fire you. How many of you come home at the end of the day and think, man, I love my job. I'm just so blessed to have this job. God really provided a great job for me. No, you're looking for a new job. How many of you, when you're hanging out with your friends, if your friends are gossiping about you, if they are you know, backbiting, if they're getting you in trouble, how many of you are like, I have wonderful friends? No, you're like, I'm joining a small group because I need to get some new friends from redemption. That's what I need, I need me some new friends. How many of you, whenever somebody, you're driving down the road and they cut you off in traffic and they give you the finger, how many of you think, thank you for telling me I'm number one? <laughs> I just needed that word of encouragement today. Thank you, Barnabas. How many of you are thinking that? No, you're like, if I didn't have this R bumper sticker on the back of my car, I would tell you where to go, brother. I would give you instructions, directions, stretch. No, that's what you're doing. But yet when we come home, we think if we hurt them, they're gonna love them. We think that if we are going to criticize them, that it's gonna change them. And what we end up doing is this. We hurt the people that we love the most. Listen, your spouse can hurt you more than your boss can. Your spouse can wound you in places that no friend could ever wound you because you've opened up your heart to them. You've let them in. You're more vulnerable with them than anybody else. And you've allowed them to enter into a place where there is great trust. And when you react instead of respond, you break the trust and you hurt the people that you love the most. How many of you are feeling a little convicted right now? Anybody else? Okay, well, that's only point number one. (laughs) Point number two is this. You want to pray more than you complain. I will pray more than I complain. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she's reached out to her friends. She says, hey, friends, come here. We need to have a talk. There's some things that I'm concerned about. I really messed up. I made a big mistake. And she says this. If you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than any other beloved that we adjure you? Her friends show up, they're in small group, they're in community group, they're having a relationship. And then she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. My beloved is distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside the streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a pool. His cheeks are like the bed of spices, mounds of sweet smelling. I thought she was mad at him. (laughs) <laughs> like she's going on and on about how great this guy is, right? I mean, what happened? How, he's like, his cheeks are, wait, why are you mad at your husband? Because his cheeks are beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold and iron. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Beset with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. I love it when Ashley says that to me. <laughs> Ashley's like, your body is bedecked with sapphires. I'm like, thank you, I think. (laughs) It says his legs are alabaster columns set on the bases of gold, right? This is Solomon. He does squats. (laughs) He does not skip leg day at the gym. I mean, he's doing the total body workout, right? Set on base of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice as the cedars. His mouth is the most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. O oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Now, does that sound like the same woman we met in verse 2? Does that sound like her? I mean, in one verse, she's like, hunting season's closed. And in this verse, she's like, go get your hunting license because we about to open. That's what she's saying. I mean, in one verse in chapter two, she's like, I can't stand you. You make me sick. And now she's like, I am sick with love. And I thought, how in the world is this possible? How, How does this happen? Like one moment, she's mad at him. And the next moment, she's completely fine. And I was really confused about this all week. I was praying, I was studying. I have like 20 marriage books, commentaries that I was going through. I talked to pastors. I listened to other pastors and theologians trying to wrap my head around how in the world could this actually happen? I just didn't understand it. I spent time with God in prayer. And I would get up here at the front of the altar and say, said, Lord Jesus, could you illuminate with the Holy Spirit my understanding so I could accurately preach, faithfully teach the word of God to our congregation. And I was thinking about it and all of a sudden it just hit me. She just changed her mind. I mean, women can do that, you know. But women just do that. I mean, one minute they're thinking one thing and the next minute they're thinking something else. I mean, they, they do. Men don't do that. Men can know they're wrong. And they'll be like, "I'm not wrong, I am right, and they're dogmatic, strong-headed, strong-willed, and they can straight up know they're wrong, but they ain't going to admit they're wrong. She just simply... she just changed her mind? <laughs> the Bible is the most honest book that has ever been written. But really, here's what's going on. Not only did she change her mind, but more than that, God changed her heart. Because the natural response to a fight is escalation that's the natural response you said this i'm gonna do this you raised your voice i'm gonna raise my voice you throw something i'm throwing something that is the natural response when it comes to a fight here we don't see the natural response instead we see a supernatural response we see instead of escalation we see that she begins to have a heart change this is exactly what repentance is by the way Repentance is a change of heart. The word repent in the Greek is metanoia, which means a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of directions. Repentance looks like this. All of your life, you're headed towards sin, you're living apart and separated from God, and you're making decisions and actions and choices that are not congruent with the teaching of the Bible. And then you stop And then you have a change of direction. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. To where now you're living in light of God rather than living in light of selfishness and sin. She was being selfish and sinful towards her husband. She has a change of mind. She has a change of heart, change of direction, and it has a change of attitude in the relationship. See, you can try to change your spouse's mind, but it only happens if God is able to change their heart. See, there's a lot of people, they think that if I could just fix them, if I could just change them, then everything's going to get better. Listen, you cannot change them. You cannot fix them. You can do everything that you want. You can argue until you're blue in the face. But unless God changes their heart, you're going to be in the same situation, have the same fight six months later. See, it's not about just trying to change their minds. That's what we think in a fight. We're like, I have to change their mind. I have to change their mind. I have to win the fight. I have to win the argument. No, you want to win their hearts. So you can try everything you want to change their mind, but unless God changes their heart, then there's not going to be any resolution that comes to that conflict. How many of you discovered complaining really helps? Anybody discover that? Like it just really it works so good when you complain about your spouse to your spouse. That really helps, men. Don't you love it when your wife nags you? How many of you love it when you come home and the first thing they do is just tell you everything that you've done wrong and everything you need to fix, and here's the baby, go change the diaper and paint the outside of the house wall? And you're like, if you don't do it in time, you're wrong. How many of you love just being nagged by your wife, right? How many ladies, how many of you love it whenever your husband comes home and he turns on the TV and he ignores you? How many of you love that? Does that make it better? Doesn't that make it so much better? Yeah, that doesn't work either. You know why? Because complaining doesn't change. Complaining doesn't change. This is what I tell our staff all the time. I said, you can complain about it or you can pray about it. And if you ain't prayed about it, you have no right to complain about it. Right? You want to try to change their mind? No, you need to let God change your heart. This is why prayer is so important. This is why this entire sermon series I've been telling you to do three things. To read your Bible together to go to church together, and then number three, to pray together. And if you do these three things, you will have a better marriage. Read your Bible, go to church, and pray together. Because prayer doesn't always change the situation, but prayer will always change your heart in the middle of the situation. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes people's hearts. And more importantly, prayer changes our heart towards that person. And so right now you might be thinking, Pastor Byron, I've done all of those things. I have been praying every single morning with my spouse. I have done those things and it has not got better. In fact, it's kind of gotten worse. Hey, give it some time. It's only been five weeks. Come talk to me in 10 years and let's talk about that. But it's, it does get better and might I suggest to you this, that before God begins to work on their heart, God is wanting to do a work in your heart. God is wanting to work in your heart. When I pray for my wife, I'm doing it because I want to be in relationship with her and I'm not just looking for the results of the prayer. See, what happens so oftentimes is we try to use our spouses and emotionally and spiritually manipulate them to get the results that we want rather than focus on the relationship that we have. So as I've been telling you to read your Bible and pray together, go to church, some of you are thinking, I did those things. And Pastor Byron, in week one, you said that men who come to church are more active and involved in the lives of their children. And we've been doing this for five weeks and they're not more active and involved. I remember when you said that women who husbands go to church, they have a ninety percent rate of sexual satisfaction than non-Christian women. And I've been reading that, and it's not happening for me. And last week you said that uh, Christian women whose husbands pray with them have a little more woo than. Men and Christians and women who don't. And I've been praying and I still ain't got a woo yet. I've been looking for my woo and I ain't got my woo. Where's my Ric Flair at? Because there ain't no woo in my marriage. Woo. So, uh, but that's part of the problem. It's because you're wanting the results. Of prayer without actually having a relationship of prayer. It's a spiritual and an emotional manipulation of your spouse. This is the same thing they teach at marriage conferences and marriage books, where they say, Men, if you really want to turn your wife on, vacuum the house. So all the men go out and get a Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Rawr. And then what happens? doesn't work. And they're like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> or they say, you really want to turn your wife on? Do the dishes. You really want to turn your wife on? They're like, oh, it's, it's whatever you tuck the kids in bed. And so all the kids be going to bed at seven o'clock tonight. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> and then you go lay in bed and it's verse two all over again. Uh, I have put on my garment. How can I put it back on again? And then you get Frustrated. Do you know why? Because you were expecting the result rather than the relationship. You were thinking, if I do this for you, you're gonna do this for me. That's the result over the relationship. You're trying to change their minds rather than praying for them and allowing God to begin to change their hearts. See, this is a heart change that's happening in the relationship. Your marriage needs a heart change towards one another. It needs a repentance towards one another that you begin to see things and see them the way that God sees them and you begin to become what we talked about in week one, spiritually connected first, emotionally invested second and then and only then will you experience intimacy the way that God has designed it because you're allowing God to begin to change their heart. I pray with Ashley, not because I want something from, her, but because I want to be closer to her. And the more that I pray with her, the more I want to serve her, the more I want to bless her, the more I want to be with her. Because the shortest distance between two people is prayer. And so if there is a distance between the two of you, then you need to get alone with God and you need to pray instead of complain. And what I've discovered is this, the more I pray with Ashley, the less I have to complain about in my marriage. It's amazing. The more we pray together, the less we complain at one another, which leads us to the third point, that we want to talk it out rather than walk away. When it comes to fighting, you want to talk it out instead of walking away. Here's what we see happen in the text. It says this, Where has your beloved gone? Oh, most beautiful among women, where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Then she responds, My beloved has gone down to the garden of his spices to graze in the garden to gather the lilies. I am my beloved and he is mine. He grazes among the lilies. I believe that this is her way of apologizing to her husband. She recognizes that he's gone. She knows where he's at. And so she takes the initiative She lays down her pride. She admits that she was wrong. She goes and she finds her husband. And this is what she said. I am my beloved's and he is mine. What she means by this is I have wronged you. I have sinned against you. My heart is towards you. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And then she says, my beloved is mine, that he forgives me, that he welcomes me, that he loves me. there's a forgiveness that happens. She goes and she talks it out. She goes and she tells her husband what she has done wrong. And this goes both ways. Men need to do the same thing for their wives as well, to honestly admit whenever they've made a mistake and do whatever it takes to be able to make it right. That we want to talk it out instead of walking away. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you nine nevers for a fair fight because here's the goal. The goal is not to win. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you win, you lose. The goal is not to win a fight. Either you both win or you both lose. That's all that there is. That we, we don't fight to win. We fight to forgive. That we want to bring forgiveness into the relationship so that way we can begin to love one another so the marriage can actually get better. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you nine nevers in a fight. How many of you like UFC? we have any UFC fans in the room? Any UFC fans? Okay. Whenever the UFC first started, like in the 90s, there was no rules. It was basically just beat the mess out of each other. And there was like bloody noses and like broken arms. And everybody's hitting below the belts. I mean, it was not good. And eventually, they were like, yeah, we need to get some rules in this because people are dying. We need to figure this out. So they got a referee. They got some rules. And then all of a sudden, it's become one of the most successful sporting industries in the entire world. I mean, people are making like millions of dollars for fighting. Okay, it's become successful. I want to help you put some rules in the fight so that way you can become successful when it comes to your fight too. Here are nine nevers. I'm going to go through them fast. You can take a picture on the screen or you can take notes. Let me give you nine nevers for a fair fight. The first one is this. Never speak rashly right? Don't just say something without thinking about it. No, you want to be calm, cool, and collected. Never fight in public. This is huge. It's awkward for everybody around you, and it makes the matters worse when you get home. Never fight in public, and especially never criticize your husband publicly as well. It's really bad whenever a man does it to a woman publicly, But internally, it does something very humiliating for the man as well. So make sure you never fight in public. Number three, never use your kids, period, point blank. Don't argue in front of your kids. And don't use your kids, especially as leverage against your spouse. Because children are blessings, not bargaining chips. So do not use your children. Never say always or never. Or you will always never win always. Does that make sense? Never say always or never because you'll never win always never if you always say never or always. Do not never always say never. Never get historical. When you get hysterical, let's be honest, you get historical Right. When you get hysterical, you get historical. And all of a sudden, they're getting in trouble for things that they did in the eighth grade. And you're like, that was so long ago. Like You become an archaeologist digging up old bones. Don't do that. Don't get historical. Keep it on subject. Never raise your voice. Definitely never raise your hand. And never be sarcastic, because that helps, doesn't it? Never go to bed angry. How many of y'all do the toe thing? Do you know what I'm talking about? The toe thing? Hey, don't tell me you don't know the toe thing. I mean, me and Ashley can't be the only couple who has... It's like an unwritten rule in relationships. When you go to bed angry, and you're laying in bed, and you're on on your side, and they're on their side, and then there's the demilitarized zone in the middle. (laughs) This is my side of the bed. That's your side of the bed. And if your toe crosses that line... We are fighting tonight, right? So for me, Ashley, Ashley's allergic to apologies, okay? Like, she, like, breaks out in hives or something like that. And and so what happens is Ashley does a lot like the Shulamite woman does. When we get in a fight, she doesn't say, I'm sorry. What she does is she shows it through affection. And she says, my beloved is mine. (laughs) And that's not what she does. What she does is we'll be laying in bed, and she'll do the toe thing. I'll be like, (laughs) and all of a sudden, here comes the toe. (laughs) And I say, get that toe away from me. No footsies for you tonight. This is my side of the bed. Right? Anybody else do that? Y'all know the toe thing. How many of y'all have done the toe thing, right? You're like, I don't really wanna say I'm sorry, but this is all you get, you get the toe, right? <laughs> but there's something really important about that. Actually, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity in your life. Unresolved conflict is an open door for the demonic in your marriage. Unresolved conflict in your marriage is an open door to where you're inviting Satan to come in and to attack you and to turn your spouse against you. Listen, Satan hates marriages. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Satan hates marriages because God made marriage. God hates whatever Satan creates. And if God made marriage and God can make your marriage better, you better believe that Satan's gonna do whatever he can to be able to torment, to to attack you. And his biggest use and weapon against you is bitterness and unforgiveness if he can get bitterness in your heart that's like drinking poison and expecting your spouse to die it doesn't work you're killing yourself you're killing the marriage and here's what satan knows satan knows that if he can turn you against your spouse y'all will shoot each other and he don't have to attack you anymore that's what bitterness does Because you're holding it in and you're not getting resolution. You're not getting reconciliation. And you're carrying the hurts, the wounds, the hardships. And every single day, your love is growing cold. Your veil is being removed and you're taking shots against your spouse. You are no longer a threat to Satan because he's already come in and now you're shooting each other. That's what bitterness and unforgiveness does. Listen, you can either bring hell into your marriage through unforgiveness or you can forgive and pull heaven down. This is why Jesus talks in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then immediately says, forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have committed debts or trespasses against us. That you need to forgive because it brings the kingdom of God into your home. Forgiveness brings the kingdom of God into your marriage. Forgiveness brings the kingdom of God into your relationship. Unforgiveness, bitterness, pulls hell up into your marriage. And if you do not learn to forgive, then your marriage will not get better. Instead, your heart will grow more and more bitter. Listen, here's the goal of a good fight. The goal of a good fight is to fight right and forgive fast. You want to fight right and you want to forgive fast. Me and Ashley, we used to have this thing where we would say, whoever apologizes first wins the argument. And that was really good for a while because Ashley can't apologize. (laughs) And I found myself apologizing for things where I didn't actually mean. And I thought, I'm winning, but I was actually losing because I thought the goal was to win. No, 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 no. The goal of a good fight is to forgive. That's the goal of a fight. The goal of a fight is to forgive as fast as you can so the kingdom of God can come into that marriage. Because if you don't forgive, you're bringing hell up into that marriage. Do not walk away. Stay. Talk. Have the conversation, learn to forgive one another, which leads to number four: I will focus on the good and not the bad. Are we feeling a little bit better by now? Yeah, it's picking up a little bit, right? I'm going to focus on the good, not the bad. You are beautiful as Tizra." How many of you think that's an interesting statement? She said, "I'm sorry, and he says, "You are beautiful." right? This is because it's a supernatural relationship that they have. It is not a natural. See, naturally, when someone says, I'm sorry, we think, aha, here's my moment. Let's go to town. They're weak. They're vulnerable. I can win now. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. Instead, she says, I'm sorry. And he says, you are beautiful. You are as beautiful as Tisra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. She's crying right now. Someone asked me earlier this week, they said, Byron, when did you know that you wanted to marry Ashley? And I would love to tell you, it was after this wonderful date. I would love to be able to tell you that it was because of the way that, you know, she serves and prays. I would love to be able to tell you, I just just knew it. Actually, I knew it because we got in a fight. And I made her cry. And I realized, I don't want to make this girl cry anymore. And I had a choice to make. Either I could find somebody new to fight with, or I could spend the rest of my life fighting with her. (laughs) And I wanted to fight with her because her eyes overwhelmed me. It goes on and it says this, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. (laughs) That's familiar, isn't it? (laughs) Guys, don't try that one at home. You might get in a fight if you say that. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, and not one of them have lost their young. She's smiling because she got her teeth. All of them. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veils. They're... There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Knock, knock, knock. The only one of her mother, pure to the one who bore her. The the young women, they saw her, they called her blessed. And the queens and the concubines also, they praised her. Who is this that looks down like the dawn, that is beautiful as the moon, as bright as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? Now, some of you may be reading this and you think, isn't that the same thing that he said last week? Wasn't that from the honeymoon nights? But aren't they in the disillusionment period? What he is doing is this. He is reminding her that he loves her the same way today as he did on the day they got married. He is recommitting himself. He is renewing his covenant. He is reminding her that she is the only one for him and that he forgives her and that he loves her and there is no distance or gap that is between her. Here's what he's actually doing. What he is doing is he is focusing on the good 80% of Song of Solomon is really good. 20% of Song of Solomon is a fight. Now, when you go home and you think about Song of Solomon, what are you going to be thinking about? You're going to be thinking about the good, right? You're going to be thinking about, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. His left hand, his right hand embraces me. That's what you're going to be thinking about in Song of Solomon. But you didn't know that there was actually 20% of this book was them fighting because they focused on the good, not the bad. Listen, 20% of your relationship will be you spent fighting And you have a choice to focus on the bad. And if you focus on the bad, guess what you're going to see? Bad. What you see is what you get. And your entire perspective of life is going to be skewed and altered with the negative. And all you see all around you is the bad. And if all you do is focus on the bad, that's all you're going to see. And you're going to miss out on the 80% that God's doing elsewhere in your life. And here's what I see so many people do, and it's tragic and it's devastating, is that they will take the 80% that they have and the 20% that they're missing, and they'll find that 20% in somebody else. And they'll trade the 80 for the 20 thing, and that's gonna make them happy. And then what happens? Now all they got is 20 they are less satisfied, they are more miserable, and they have less than they had before because all they did was focus on the negative that was around them and the bad instead of focusing on the good that was in the relationship. Listen, counting your blessings is the hardest math there is. Not everything in the marriage is bad. Focus on the good. Not everything that's going on around you is bad. Focus on the good. And if all you see is bad, then all you're going to continually be getting is bad. And one day, eventually, you're going to trade the 80 for the 20. Focus on the good. Listen, I hate to bust your bubble here, but you will never have a perfect marriage. Just, you said that way too loud, my man. (laughs) (laughs) You will never have, (laughs) that's a good man. You will never have a perfect marriage. You will never have a perfect marriage. Now, you can have a better marriage if you focus on the good and not the bad, but you will never have a perfect marriage. Those of you who are dating right now, he will never be perfect for you. She will never be perfect for you. Some of you have expectations for a spouse that only God can fulfill. See, that's why your expectations and frustrations are so high. It's because you're expecting something out of your spouse to complete you. Ain't no man going to complete you. Ain't no woman going to complete you. They ain't that good. You're expecting other people to have your 100. They're not going to be 100 for you. They can't be. It's impossible because they're not perfect. Your spouse will sin against you. Just so you know, one sinner plus one sinner doesn't equal no sin. You need to check your math. One plus one equals two. It's twice the sin, double the trouble. Carry the one. Check it out. Sin. They will sin against you. You will sin against them. You will fight. You will argue. There will be dark days. There will be painful seasons in life. There will be days when you don't know if you can hold on or keep going. And there will be times and weeks and months where you don't even talk to one another. And you're going to be in that situation because no one's perfect. And this is why you need good news. Because you ain't perfect either. See, everybody wonders, did I marry the right person? Nobody wonders, am I the right person? See, everybody thinks, I can't believe them. Not if you go to redemption, you can't believe them. (laughs) I told you, they were going to do that. And you're going to do it to them too. Because you're not perfect. No one's perfect. No one is righteous. Not even one. We've all sinned. How many of you have ever said this? Nobody's so you agree. Nobody's perfect. And here's why you need more than good advice when it comes to marriage, because marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's what marriage is. It is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. This is why we need to learn how to deal with unforgiveness in the marriage, because if you don't learn how to do it, then you're never going to be able to fulfill the meaning of marriage itself, an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. But let's get the attention off of your spouse. Let's put the attention on God. This is the way that God loves us. This is the reason the gospel is so important, because Jesus is unconditionally committed to us as imperfect people. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, for while we were sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were enemies that our whole back, our whole life, we've been stonewalling God. We have been critical. We have been contemptuous. We have been defensive, stonewalling God. We have been fighting against him, resisting him. We have been opposing him. Our entire life is sin. And then while we were enemies at war, fighting with God, guess what God did? God loved us. He says, this is my beloved. I am my beloved's. He sought us. He pursued after us. He comes and he reconciles us. We fought against him, but he chose to forgive us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus Christ, Much more, now that we are reconciled, we're one, we're together, we're relationally equal, we're here together with him, we shall be saved in this life. More than that, we also shall rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. That through Jesus' death and his death on the cross, we have received a reconciled relationship with God. And here's why this is so incredibly important for you. Jesus died the death for sin so you don't have to kill your marriage. Because Jesus died for that sin. Yes, their sin was bad. Yes, their sin was wrong. But there is a forgiveness that is impossible. And Jesus actually died for it. So you can lay down your weapons. You can pick up your banner and you can start to forgive because Jesus is our army with banners. Jesus is the warrior who conquers Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave. Jesus is the one who has come to do battle to set us free. Jesus is the one who has the victory. Jesus is the one who fought for us, and then his banner of love is over us. It's the banner of grace, it's the banner of hope, it's the banner of mercy, it's the banner of forgiveness. We don't fight to win because Jesus already won, we fight to forgive. This is why better fights lead to better marriages because it reminds us that we're not perfect and that he loved us anyway. And yes, they're not perfect either, but I'm gonna love them the way that Jesus has loved us. And if you do this, I know what I'm asking. I know it is really hard, but if you do this, it'll lead to number five. It'll get better instead of bitter. Better. There's three stages to the relationship. There's the honeymoon period. There's the disillusionment period. And then there is the commitment period. And for the rest of Song of Solomon, they're going to be moving into the period of commitment. And here's where we see the commitment begins. I went down to the nut orchard. You can go listen to week one if you want to know where that's at look at the blossoms of the valley to see where the vines had budded where the pomegranates were in bloom before I was aware my desires set among me the chariots of my kinsman a prince the fight is over and now all of a sudden her desires are awakened within her and she goes and she begins to contemplate and think about her relationship and here's what she says we had a decision we could either let conflict destroy us or we can allow it to make us better. And we chose to work it out instead of walk away. And now because of it, our relationship is healthier and flourishing now than it's ever been before. See, bad fights lead to bitter marriages. A bad fight's when you try to win. A good fight is when you forgive. Good fights lead to better marriages. And because of this, their marriage actually got better. And this is what I was telling you at the beginning. Better marriages are results from better fights. Some of you think the whole goal is to not fight. That's not the goal. The goal is to learn to fight right and forgive fast. And your relationship, your marriage, will indeed get better. So here's what I want to do. For those of you who are married, if you're watching online, if you're married, I want you to hold your spouse's hand. I want you to turn. I want you to look at him. I'm going to give you the five rules for fighting. I want you to repeat after me. I will respond and not react. I will, respond, react. I, will I, I will pray more than I complain. I will talk instead of walk away. I will focus on the good and not the bad. I will get better and not bitter. Better marriages are a result of better fights, and so The goal is not to win. The goal is to forgive. Now, some of you today, as I'm preaching this, you recognize that there is a spiritual connection between you and Jesus that is needing reconciliation as well. That as you're hearing this, you think, I want that for my marriage. But the truth is, God wants something better for that. God wants that with him. God wants you to have this relationship with him so much so that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. Your sins were so grievous that Jesus had to die for them and God willingly paid that price. And you recognize it most within the context of marriage because husbands know that they have sinned against their wives, wives know that they have sinned against their husbands, and you recognize that the reason that there is fights and wars between us is because there is sin and there is selfishness. You understand this. And so not only do you need to forgive your spouse, but God to forgive you. And so if you're watching online or if you're here today, I wanna encourage you to give your life to Jesus, to surrender your life to Jesus, because as you do, you will notice that if you seek first the kingdom of God, put God first in your life, then everything around you is going to become different as you seek the Lord first. And so I encourage you, if you're watching online, click the button. If you're here in the room, our prayer team is going to come forward. They want to pray for you. So we're going to worship, sing, take Holy Communion. And then as we dismiss, we have a prayer team that is going to be here to pray for you.